This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inderst, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Samuel Ulbricht about his latest book, Ethics of Computer Gaming. This book is actually a translation of the original German first edition Ethik des Computerspielens from 2020. Despite the increasing number of gamers worldwide, the moral classification of computer gaming marks as yet unsolved riddle of philosophical ethics. In view of the explosive nature of the topic in everyday life, as seen in various debates about rampages, for example, it is obvious that a differentiated professional clarification of the phenomenon is highly needed. Can playing computer games be immoral? Samuel, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, of course, including your favorite game. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, at the moment, I'm working as a researcher in practical philosophy at the University of Mainz with my primary focus on the ethics of teaching. <laughs> But of course, um, I'm still interested in and working on the ethics and aesthetics of play. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about this topic for a long time now, uh, starting at University of Stuttgart, where I studied philosophy and German literature. I've always been interested in a special kind of play agency that is in the way we act while we play games. And I'm especially interested in its action theoretical, fiction theoretical, and its moral implications. Of course, my research usually starts with games that catch my attention and somehow challenge my intuition. These games aren't always my favorite games, though. For example, I, I think the, the Grand Theft Auto series can teach us many things about the ethical potential of games, but I wouldn't consider it being one of my favorite games, although I do like it and I played it a lot. So, yeah, what are my favorite games? <sighs> this, this is really the, the most difficult question right at the beginning. Um, huh. If I had to decide... It would probably be, at least at the moment, um, The Last of Us Part Two, Zelda Breath of the Wild, and um, The Witcher Wild Hunt. But yeah, with that answer, I'm really not doing justice to so many other great games out there. I'm, 
I mean, think of God of War, Hellblade, Bloodborne, Inside, Mass Effect. It takes two, also all the Mario games. And at the moment, Elden Ring, I love them all. And please don't ask this question ever again. <laughs> I see. But uh, I take it then you, you're aiming for the big boys and AAA titles, right? Yeah, not not only AAA titles. I mean, uh, Inside is not really a AAA title, mm. but it's one of my favorite games. Um, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's circle back to uh, to your book then. Um, how did you come to write Ethics of Computer Gaming and how would you position your work in relation to the field of game studies then? Um, yeah, well, like I said, I've always been interested in the topic and I decided at the end of my study that I wanted to write my final thesis about the ethics of computer gaming. And in a way, this thesis was a culmination of all my thoughts that I had developed while studying philosophy and playing interesting games. And luckily, it was received very well. So I had the opportunity after an extensive revision to publish my work at Metzler. And this same work was recently translated into English at Paragraphic Millen. To, to summarize it, um, basically, my book is an answer to the bulk of philosophical papers and thoughts that are concerned with the ethics of computer gaming. I always thought that you firstly have to carefully determine the object of interest before you can morally evaluate it suitably. I think that many philosophical papers concerned with the ethics of computer games don't fulfill this condition. I've always been under the impression that most attempts at understanding the morality of computer gaming didn't sufficiently clarify what we actually do when we are playing games. And I think it's crucial to be mm -hmm. fully aware of the special play character of gaming actions that comes along with its fictionality, among other things. And with my focus on the specific fiction theoretical and action theoretical status of computer game actions, I'm not only relating or, or reacting to recent attempts of defining the ethics of computer games, But I'm also challenging traditional positions of ethicists like Aristotle, Henry Sidwick, or Immanuel Kant, and other philosophers like Kendall Walton, Elizabeth Anscombe, and Donald Davidson. And in this respect, my work is primarily a philosophical work. And this means that for the most part, I exclude empirical, cultural, or social considerations and focus on clarifying the concepts of agency, fictionality, and morality in relation to play on a more basic level. But despite this very theoretical approach, uh, however, I, I think that philosophical, that this philosophical thoughts concerning the basic concepts underlying or dealing with games can also be very he helpful for more empirical approaches to games and game playing. Hmm, I see. Um... If I understand your book correctly, you decided to kick off your first chapter by putting forward an answer to the mother of all questions, at least in game research, what are computer games? And reading your first paragraph, you underline your position that the activity, the, activity, the actual activity of playing a game and the game as an artifact, it's not the same thing really. Could you please elaborate on this argument a bit and also tell us why this very distinction is so important and relevant for your next chapters to come? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, 
yeah, like you said, I, I think it's very important to distinguish different possible objects for a moral evaluation before starting an ethical analysis. And yeah, let's begin with simple cases. Intuitively, we are able to morally evaluate a player's action without judging the game he's playing and vice versa. For example, um, the game Rape Play, where you basically have to rape women. Well, it's probably a very reprehensible game. But this doesn't automatically mean that every instance of playing this game is also objectionable. Imagine a lawyer who's playing Rayplay solely to reach a ban of this game. His action wouldn't be immoral, would it? Mm-hmm. And the other way around, we wouldn't morally condemn games like Red Dead Redemption 2 only because some players create very questionable videos with it where they mistreat women rights activists or something like that. Mm-hmm. And based on this, I find a strict distinction between games as objects and play as activity very useful. And when morally evaluating computer game actions, we should not mix these different normative dimensions. I can do something wrong while playing a morally decent computer game. And I I can play morally questionable games in a permittable way. Um, Yeah, of course, I don't want to say that that there are no significant correlations between games and play actions. On the contrary, right? Every game is ontologically incomplete without a player playing it. And at the same time, seriously playing a game always means to faithfully follow its rules, goals, and struggles. But nevertheless, in order to suitably analyze this relationship, it's important to firstly determine the relating parts. And in my book, I decided to focus primarily on the morality of the actions we perform by playing computer games and not on the games as objects. Well, because, yeah, on on the one hand, actions are the traditional subjects for moral evaluation, not objects or artifacts. And on the other hand, I found the challenge of the ethics of computer gaming to be much more exciting than the challenge of the ethics of games. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm just thinking about something. Maybe it comes back later on. But um, let's let's follow up then, because in your second chapter then of ethics of computer gaming, uh, computer gaming as activity, you introduce a very 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 exciting thing. It's called syllogism. And as uh, for me, as a native, not non-native speaker, this is a hell of a word, of course, to put it <laughs> right in English. You introduce the theoretical category of the syllogism. How does this concept help your readers to create a better understanding of your topic then? Yeah, um, this this syllogism, the the practical syllogism um, is the traditional way of philosophers to describe actions. And um, this model goes back to Aristotle and it's very useful to clearly illustrate the elements that are crucial for understanding actions. And um, at first glance, the practical syllogism is basically structured like a logical deduction. We have two premises and one conclusion. Mm-hmm. But a key difference lies in the way we reach the conclusion. Forming an action is clearly different from reaching a logical conclusion. We weigh our possibilities and their consequences before we decide what to do. So an action is the result of a decision and not of a logical deduction. 
Recent action theorists like, like um, Elizabeth Anscombe and Donald Davidson build upon the insights of Aristotle and emphasize that actions are especially determined by the will of the agent. That is the reason why she's doing what she's doing. And this reason must contain something that she wants to reach, that she, she values somehow. And her will represents the first premise of the practical syllogism and embodies the fundamental normative role of the action. The second premise then consists in the way how her will is to be actualized. It's basically the body movement that the agent needs to perform in order to fulfill her will. Mm. And the conclusion then is the action. I give an example. Um, I want to open the door, this is the will, by moving my hand, this is the body movement, so, and this is the conclusion, I move my hand in order to open the door. And with this structure in mind, we can easily analyze actions we perform while playing games. After all, play actions resemble real actions in the formal structure that consists of will, body movement, and action. On the other hand, the practical syllogism also helps to highlight several specifics of gaming actions in contrast to ordinary actions. Hmm. I would now. I, I I was wondering for a moment there. Um, could you compare what would happen actually if? Is it would you describe it as some form of different reaction if I open up uh, the door to my office right now? I put my hand forward, and door opens. Fine, because I do expect that to happen. But uh, within a let's say brand new gaming environment in a virtual environment of a game, um, if this door would not behave the way the actual door in my office would behave. Do you think this would trigger some some different reaction in, in my mind, in my way of thinking about this virtual environment? Um, well, I think that um, if only the door behaves differently, then this wouldn't change anything in your will or body movement would mm. um, if your intent to open the door um, and you really go you, you go to the door and uh, open it and you you um, you use the same body movement you move your hand the same way and you mm -hmm. form your intention the same way then I think at least on the formal level there's not really um There's not really so, any difference. It's not really another action uh, yeah. than than the uh, ordinary action. But I think we can differentiate different types of actions we do in virtual environments. Yeah, this is a good point because this is the uh, this is the essence uh, of your uh, second. Uh, the second half on in your second chapter, also there you where you uh, deal with three different types of computer gaming, and you do label these types as uh, virtual, fictional, and fictive actions. Um, again, virtual, fictional, and fictive actions. Could you please take us through these various classifications in order to get an increased comprehension of their very potential? Yeah, with pleasure. Um... Yeah, exactly. This differentiation of three types of computer game actions is basically a differentiation of three levels of fictionality. Mm -hmm. And um, like we, we can use the example of the opening the door in, in our ordinary everyday actions, like normally opening a door, no fictionality is involved. I open a door, 
I go shopping to buy food. I give an interview to talk about philosophy and computer games. I go to sleep because I'm tired and so on. These are ordinary actions with ordinary goals from ordinary people living in reality. But apparently fictive characters also act, right? Harry Potter casts spells. Frodo destroys the ring. And Mario jumps on several heads to rescue Princess Peach. And these actions are what I call fictive actions. And mm -hmm. they only take place in a fictive world. They're executed by characters, not by persons. Players, on the other hand, are persons and not solely characters. So they perform, perform real actions and not fictive ones. But they perform actions that at least partly reach into fictive worlds. So mm -hmm. we shouldn't classify them as ordinary actions either. Of course, there are play actions that largely resemble ordinary actions because they're supposed to fulfill real purposes in the real world. For example, scoring a goal in FIFA to humiliate my fellow player obviously aims for a real-world purpose. Hmm. Or racing in Mario Kart to train my motor skills. Or, I don't know, simply building a little town in Animal Crossing to relax. Um, these are undoubtedly actions that we can perform while playing games. They're so obviously computer game actions. But when players act this way, they use the game solely as a means to reach a real end. The only but still important difference to ordinary actions is that the players basically take a detour to fulfill their purposes. And these actions I call virtual actions. So there are computer game actions, but they aim at a real-world goal. But not every action has to aim at real-world goals. We can also play games just for the sake of, I don't know, changing the fictive world. We can compete with Ganondorf to save Hyrule. We can fight our way through monsters to escape the dungeon, or we can wander around and challenge several foes to explore the lands between and finally become the Elden Lord. I'm, I don't know. These are purposes that are located inside the fictive world. And when we aim at such goals while playing games, we act fictionally. And the game guides us here. We, we accept its rules as laws and identify with its fictive world. And these actions, which I call fictional actions, yeah, not fictive, but fictional, these actions are the philosophical most interesting ones, especially regarding the moral dimension. Hmm. I'm wondering whether um, as a, let's say, um, as a buyer of video games, um, if I decide to take, uh, yeah, if I decide to literally take action and buy a certain game, and I exactly do know that I have, for example, picking up your example, um, have to, uh, that the goal of the game actually is to rape women. Um, would this be some sort of um, interlink or ch chain link these classifications in a row together? Or would you rather say that this is um, has to be seen in a rather independent context from, from each other, so to speak? Yeah, I, I would say um, your last thought is the right one. I, I, I would say that buying a game is... An ordinary action and it's not a computer game action right it's not a, an action that you perform while playing a game mm -hmm. buying an object that is immoral 
like Rayplay is an immoral game. Um, there are different reasons or different uh, considerations uh, or different moral um, ethics that can um, that can lead us to the conclusion that Rayplay is an immoral game, and we just say that it's an immoral game. And if you buy this immoral object, then this is an ordinary action that um, I think we have to look at with our ordinary ethical um, positions or uh, considerations and arguments that we know. And this is different from gaming actions that you perform while playing a game. Hmm. All right. I see. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> um, your third and final chapter is called the ethics of computer gaming, finally, <laughs> and also comes twofold. In the first part, you take a closer look at what you label the evaluative dimension. And I wonder, what is so assessing about this very dimension? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, one could say that while the deontological dimension of moral analysis shows us the range of morally legal actions, the evaluative dimension shows us the weight of their normativity. Deontological uh -huh. ethics include demands, permissions, and prohibitions like um, you must not lie or you must not kill. And evaluative ethics, on the other hand, emphasize different moral weights of our actions and provide us with a morality range. Evaluative ethics are able to normatively distinguish between different actions because Instead of starting with rules, they start with moral goals. And for example, the utilitarianism, for instance, um, considers the consequences of our actions. Mm -hmm. So, for example, normative differences between plain murder and real murder become very obvious. The latter causes extreme pain to at least one living person and takes her out of existence, while the first one, the plain murder, does not. Um, it has not a comparable effect in the real world. So um, this dimension helps us to differentiate between uh, play actions and ordinary actions. I see. Um, now, especially in territories or countries like Germany, where the majority of people still hold at least a bit of a skeptical view upon video and computer games, this next question you put forward will find definitely its audience. Can playing computer games um, cause harmful consequences is actually your question. And, well, does it? Yeah, uh, maybe it's a little bit of a bummer, but yeah. To answer this question, we firstly have to distinguish between a psychological or sociological and a philosophical perspective. And um, as a philosopher, I'm primarily concerned with the following questions. Are there any conceptual attributes of computer game actions that distinguish them from ordinary actions and, for example, yeah, exclude the, possi exclude the possibility of causing harm? And there's a widespread intuition, especially between gamers, that play must always remain morally irrelevant. And this is the position of the ludic amoralist. He says, players only play games. No harmful consequences can be caused while playing games. Mm -hmm. And of course, one sh could and one should check the thesis by looking at empirical studies that examine possible consequences of playing computer games. 
I don't know, are we more aggressive after playing a shooter or are we more likely to help others after playing a team building game and so on? And these questions, I would say they are very interesting and their answers are very important. But as matters stand, um, as far as I know, there's no hard evidence that computer gaming has a direct and significant influence on our actions in reality that is different from the consumption of other digital or non-digital media. Of course, mm -hmm. games shape our experience and our agencies, but a one-to-one -one transformation of certain in-game actions and in-game motivations to our real life is just not very likely. In short, even if I killed many, many people in games, this doesn't mean that I'm more likely to kill people in real life. But I, I do want to acknowledge that harmful consequences for the player are still possible. For example, when one plays too many hours, especially in too young ages. But this is probably less by the specifics of play than rather by general specifics of addictive behavior. Either way, mm -hmm. These are empirical and not philosophical considerations. And like I said, as a philosopher, I'm more concerned with the questions if there are any specific consequences that distinguish gaming actions from ordinary actions. Are there game-specific dangers or chances? And in my book, I argue that from an utilitarian viewpoint, there are not. For the utilitarianism, Play actions work just like ordinary actions. They're executed by people and can have consequences that are potentially morally relevant. Of course, it's unlikely that playing computer games causes a relevant amount of real harm. Quite the contrary, in most cases, playing computer games create happiness. But um, obviously, <laughs> not only computer game actions have such an impact. Morally, one could, could compare the activity Uh, morally, one could compare the activity of computer gaming with the activity of taking a walk. In most cases, both activities yeah. are not morally relevant. And if they are, then because of their positive effects, positive effects. But in both cases, exceptions are possible. For example, when we look at pathological gaming as part of an addiction, or when I'm in fact using my play actions for planning a crime or something. But obviously, these are rather unusual cases of playing games and not game-specific consequences. But I have to say that this utilitarian analysis is possibly only the starting point for evaluating morally relevant consequences of computer gaming. Um, in his book Games, Agency SR, the philosopher Nguyen writes about important features of games which distinguish them in fact, casually from, casually from um, ordinary actions. For example, he states that games can have a considerable influence on our autonomy because they design our agencies. And if this turned out to be true, which must be confirmed empirically, then this indeed would represent a special feature of gaming actions that distinguishes them from ordinary actions. Um, yeah, to sum up, I think you cannot say that um, playing computer games um, cause harmful consequences in many cases, but of course there are actions uh, that we can take while playing that cause harm. Mm. I was just <clears throat> thinking about these, um, and, and I'm pretty sure you know exactly what I'm talking about, these uh, key 
keep politics out of games kind of types. Uh, they're somehow connected also with this huge formal, huge mov movement uh, of Gamergate. Uh, would it be possible to place these kind of uh, types also within this spectrum? Because you were mentioning these, um, how uh, you call them, uh, ludic amoralists? No, what was it? Yeah. Do you think there's some form of connection there? Yeah, yeah, I, you know, right. I, I, I would say that the the position of the ludic amoralist, like the position that, um, yeah, it's only a game. I'm mm -hmm. only playing. There's nothing morally relevant here. I think this is exactly the position that is um, at place here in, at Gamergate, and it, it also it, this not only um, excludes moral considerations, but also political considerations. I mean, I think maybe any normative considerations regarding um, games. Um, so yeah, we could say that the ludic amoralist is the uh, position um, that that supports exactly this. Um, yeah this type of gamer mm -hmm. but i think there are good arguments uh, against this ludic amoralist right because we know cases of gaming and I, i i gave some examples for play actions that are obviously not morally irrelevant yeah in in the in the third the the aforementioned second part of your third chapter, now you focus you do focus on duty based ethics. Now, um, I can only speculate when our listeners had their last reread of Kant, but let's assume it has been quite a while. So, how can we utilize his ideas and concepts to get a deeper understanding of ethics in digital games? Mm -hmm. Okay, well. This will take some time. Um, good, good. <laughs> Kant's, Kant's duty-based ethics um, as a deontological position um, can tackle some of the hurdles that the utilitarianism or also the Aristotelian ethics face. First of all, Kant can easily distinguish play actions from ordinary actions using a normative approach. And that is because Kant doesn't look at the consequences of an actions but at their intention, the will that justifies and causes the action, the first premise of the practical syllogism. If the will of one's action contradicts the categorical imperative, then it's morally wrong. And the categorical imperative goes like the following. Act only according to that maxim, whereby you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. Yeah, hmm. but I, I want to explain Kant's idea like this. As soon as your intended action is possible, only because others do not act like you, your action is morally wrong, because mm -hmm. you make yourself an exception with it. For example, if I'm about to give a promise that I know I will break, then this action is only possible because not everyone is acting like me. If anyone would act like me, in Kant's words, if my maxim, that is my justifying will, would become a universal law, then one couldn't successfully give a promise because no one would trust it. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even make a false promise because the social practice of promising would be completely diminished. To fake a promise, one has to assume that the others rely on my promising words. 
And mm -hmm. if this is not the case, I cannot deceive them. So ultimately, I cannot think of my will of giving a false promise as a reasonable will that should be realized. It contradicts the moral law and therefore it's morally forbidden. Mm -hmm. What does this mean for the ethics of computer gaming? Well, plenty of things. Um, let's begin with simple cases. As soon as my will contradicts the categorical imperative while playing, my computer game action is morally wrong. And like I said, I think it's obvious that we can think of many such cases when performing virtual actions, right? Not, not fictive actions or fictional, but virtual actions here. So when I aim at real purposes, I can really contradict the categorical imperative. For example, when I secretly cheat while playing with others or when I want to humiliate my teammate through my play. In such cases, my maxims clearly contradict the categorical imperative because they mark myself as exception. I can only act this way because I don't allow others to act the same way. It's impossible that everyone plays like I do in such moments. Yeah, but what about fictional, act uh, fictional actions? Mm -hmm. When my will aims only at fictive goals, how could it contradict the categorical imperative? And this is one of the core questions of my book. And the answer is, um, yeah, it's complex. And, um, but in short, I think that fictional actions can indeed contradict the categorical imperative and therefore be immoral, even if we assume fictive worlds to be amoral worlds, that is, as worlds that moral rules cannot grasp. I claim that a fictional action is morally relevant when the player interprets his own action as morally relevant. The players then use a special type of make-believe when acting this way. They don't accept the fiction. That is, they don't act as if they are acting in the fictive world. This, I think, would be the standard case. But in this uh, not standard cases, in the morally relevant cases, they mentally transform fiction to reality. That means mm -hmm. that they make themselves believe that the performed play actions are real, normatively relevant actions. Could this be, sorry for interrupting, but could this be described as some form of um, morally, moral, moral suspension of this belief then? Um, Yeah, I mean, is some, it... something like that. But but uh, I would I think this this mental transformation doesn't mean that the players forget that they're only playing. Mm -hmm. I think that all players know perfectly well that they are, for example, not really murdering a person, but only in game. Mm -hmm. But yeah. at the same time, um, these players mentally and normatively assess their actions as if it would be a real action. So it's ah, still a game are. of make-believe. Mm -hmm. I, I want to give you an example. Um, I think most of the listeners have heard about America's Army. It's a tactical shooter created by the US Army. And this game was developed with the goal to recruit new soldiers for the Army. Players are supposed to understand their play as practicing military operations and considerations, as gaining first military experiences or something like that. And in this context, I think it's not unlikely that many players in fact regard their play as more than just that. 
and they act as if their actions are not only play actions, but normatively relevant ways of military thinking and training, even if at the same time they know that they're not really increasing their military skill while playing. And in this mode of play, players interpret their in-game decisions not only as fictionally relevant, but as factually relevant. In other words, I think they open their actions, actions for normative criteria from the real world. They measure their activity not only regarding fictive success, but also regarding real military success of some sort. They don't think that they are really killing soldiers or something like that, but they think or they act as if they're um, gaining some military experience. And mm -hmm. by approaching your play with this normative lens of ordinary actions, which are morally relevant, of course, I think you really transform your actions to normatively relevant actions that can be morally forbidden with Kant. Hmm. Um, I was just thinking about the concept of, a, let's say, um, for the sake of the argument, um, some mm -hmm. kind of moral ladder. If the first uh, step on this ladder would be would imply that I actually do kill people and I know that this has, let's say, some sort of moral implication. But the next step of the ladder would be just thinking about whether I do succeed or not. And if I intentionally decide to ignore this first step and just measure my, my outcome of the gaming results within the framework of success or non-success, could this be... Uh, a trick then to to um, yeah to circumvent uh, this this first question at all whether my original deeds are uh, immoral or not. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say that this is a trick. Um, I mean, uh, with the practical syllogism in mind, it's all about my will, about the first premise. This is the normative relevant element in my action, hmm. and um, I think. If my will aims at just succeeding the game, then I don't see anything that could be immoral here. Mm -hmm. um, even if on the on the display, this is it's the same action of killing people. Yeah. Um, and I also think that normally, if your will is I just want to uh, kill a bunch of people here, I think that in typical cases this also is not morally relevant because um, most players do know perfectly well that um, that that you are not really killing people and they also they are not, not acting as if they are killing people in reality but they act as if they are killing people in the game world in the fictive world they, um, so th there's no transformation here they accept the fiction And these special cases I described, um, these are really not the normal and typical cases. There, the, the, um, uh, in these cases, the players do not accept the fiction. They want to use the fiction um, to, well, to transform it into reality and to uh, fulfill purposes that they couldn't fulfill in reality, but they use the game actions um, to realize their uh, immoral will. That's, it's yeah, it's not that easy to to explain, but um, yeah, I think that the important thing here is that um, 
for morally forbidden actions with Kant are not typical gaming actions. I think in most cases, um, gamers accept the fiction. And then because I think that all uh, fictive worlds are in fact amoral, so they're not morally relevant. Um, and if we accept these fictive worlds, I think that, um, yeah, we cannot do something morally wrong with Kant. Well, uh, I'm afraid I have to contradict because you have explained it very well, I think. And so, <laughs> so thank you for this. I mean, it's a complicated. Uh, when I was reading your book, um, the first the first edition, the German edition, I, I had to reread some paragraphs and read again. But this is something that, uh, yeah, well, it's it comes with the territory, right? So um, high rereading value, so to speak. Perfect. Um, well, we've taken up a lot of your time now. Um, what are you working on now? And of course, what will you be playing next? Um, yeah, at, at the moment, I'm primarily working on my dissertation in ethics of teaching. But um, at the same time, I'm still doing research and publishing papers on the topic, topic of ethics and aesthetics of play and of computer games, of course. Um, also considering their didactical potential in schools. Um, yeah, regarding games I'll play in the near future, well, I'll be engaged many more hours with Elden Ring, that's for sure. Um, but apart from that, I'm looking forward to play Kina, Bridge of Spirits, and finally, finally, Cyberpunk 2077, which I wanted to play without bugs or other technical issues. And also, you may meet me in online matches of the new Mario Strikers for the Nintendo Switch. Oh, yeah. Uh, so uh, Betty, better get ready. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These sounds like great projects. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today, and I really enjoyed it. So take care and goodbye. <laughs>